This is Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. It's my great pleasure to have Ann Swanson join us today. I'm proud to say that many, many years ago, Ann Swanson was an employee of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, but for, I believe, close to three decades, if not a little longer, you have been executive director of the Chesapeake Bay Commission. Welcome, Ann. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. The listeners should know that the commission has been the institution at the state legislative level, which has created so many great laws and policies and really fundamental uh, elements, building blocks of this five, six decade Bay restoration effort. So give us the Chesapeake Bay Commission uh, raison d'etre, uh, how it's formed, who's involved, and then we'll okay. talk a little bit about some of the accomplishments. Okay. You know, I should, in the transition between the Bay Foundation and the Bay Commission, mention this, that when I decided um, very young in my career to apply for the Chesapeake Bay Commission uh, Executive Director, one of the questions in the interview um, was, how are you going to explain the differences in all the organizations? Right. And I said, oh, that's easy. And they said, oh, yeah, do it. <laughs> and so that's I sat there in the interview. So let's see if I can do it <laughs> 35 years later. Um, so the Bay Commission is a tri-state legislative commission. So unlike the Bay Foundation, which is a membership organization that does advocacy work and does education work and land conservation work, instead, the Bay Commission is all about making policy. It's the governors of the three states and the legislators from three states. So there's 21 members from Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. Only the governors can send a designee, which is a cabinet-level secretary. And so in the end, what it means is that you have legislators, people that can carry legislation at the table. And if you can then explain to them why there's an issue that they need to take action on, then we can help them draft up the bill and they can put it in the hopper. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have their work cut out for them because they need to convince all the House and Senate members that it's a good idea. So there's a lot of hurdles between us, the Bay Commission, and the passage of the legislation. But it's a start because you have people inside doing the good work of conservation. So that's what the Bay Commission does. One of the first questions people often ask is, why only three states? There's six states in our watershed. And to me, the answer is simple, and it's all about focus which is 80% of the land in the Chesapeake Bay watershed and 90% of the pollutant load comes from three states, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. And so what we do is we focus at the heart of the matter and the crux of the cleanup, and that's those three states. So that's what we do, and I've been doing it uh, for almost 30 years now, and uh, the Bay Foundation is an absolute essential um, key partner. Um, the Bay Foundation has very powerful advocacy and communications arms that help legislators do good things every day. Well, you know, it, it, it is certainly a mutual admiration society between the two organizations. I, I often say the Bay Commission members 
are really the Chesapeake Bay's ambassadors yeah. to their individual state legislatures. And um, they are. It, 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 we're going to talk about, ask you about a couple of examples. But um, I do have to mention that the Chesapeake Bay Commission paid the foundation the highest honor possible mm -hmm. uh, in January of this year, our 50th right. year. The commission was the first institution to uh, give us accolades for our 50th anniversary year. And I think it was, what, January 4th or 5th. You yep. got in and you wanted to be first yep. and you all were and we were so grateful. Yep. Well, and the thing that's really important to know about that is that was our our members' idea. Honest to God, came straight from the members. And, and I was giving you credit that, for no, it. And then, <laughs> and then not only that, but then they went on and realized the power of their their unique role. And so they were able to also pass resolutions in the General Assemblies to allow all of the colleagues in the General Assemblies to honor the Bay Foundation and its work. And so you can see that the Bay Commission is wholly unique in that there's no other Bay organization that would have that kind of access to the General Assemblies. So what they try to do is use that unique lawmaking and resolution passing and sort of um, as ambassadors of the people, they try to use that talent to its best advantage. The other thing which we haven't talked about a lot, but is that by the commission is created by law in all three states. So people say, well, what is it? Is it a membership organization? No, it's created by law in all three states. And then they have to meet four times a year. They're, they're, they work on all things related to the watershed. So if it's land, air, water, living resources, it is fair game for their policymaking. And the other thing is they're designated as the liaison to Congress. And oftentimes when Congress is having a hearing, they don't have enough bandwidth, they don't have enough time to have every state in the watershed speak. So oftentimes they'll ask us because we are a governmental organization. We're just a highly unique governmental organization that spans three states. You know, our listeners won't appreciate this, but they should take this as, as fact, as the truth, the gospel. <laughs> Chesapeake Bay Commission, you just said, meets four times a year, two-day meetings, a tremendous commitment of time. Legislators from the top of the watershed in upstate Pennsylvania will come to the bottom of the bay in Hampton Roads and vice versa, traveling long distances. Long. And you work them. Yes. Th these aren't, these aren't um, junkets. These no. are working sessions. And I've been to a number over the years. And it's a highly prestigious appointment to be on the Chesapeake Bay Commission. Uh, yeah. These are the top echelons of the legislatures uh, from all three states. It's oh. really remarkable, the commitment yeah. they make and you and your staff make uh, to the work. And if you look at who they are, um, they chair major committees, they chair agricultural committees, appropriations Give committees. Give a few examples just on the current commission. For example, in Maryland, since we're sitting in Maryland, in Maryland we have the chair of the House Appropriations Committee, we have the vice chair of the House Appropriations Committee, 
We have the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. Um, we have the chair of the Environment Subcommittee for um, the House Transportation and Environment Committee. And that's the same I level mean, it's the of the same in every, in every state. state. And in, in Pennsylvania, we have the chairs of the Fish, of the Fish and Game Commission uh, or the Fish and B Game Committee. Uh, we have the um, ranking, the senior member of the um, Senate in charge of all appointments. So, for, for example, all the secretaries have to go through him. He's basically third in charge in the, in the Senate. We have, uh, you know, in Virginia, the same thing. We have appropriators. We have chairs of ag committees. It's remarkable. So we can't name uh, all the members by name, but just give a shout out to your last two or three uh, uh, chairs of the commission. Well, right now, our chair is um, Representative Garth Everett, and Garth is from the northern tier of, Pennsylva of Pennsylvania. So he's on the near the New York line. That speaks volumes. Just, I got to tell you, that speaks volumes. Right. And uh, particularly right now with uh, what's going on at the federal level, you know, you, you would hope that would help. Pennsylvania is a very strong state. Um, Garth Everett, for information, is a Republican. Um, in uh, uh, Last year, our chair was Senator Mac Middleton. Senator Mac Middleton chairs the um, uh, Senate Finance Committee. He's certainly one of the people who's often spoken about to perhaps be the next president of the Senate. The um, only working farmer, I believe, that's in right. the Maryland General Assembly. That's correct. And so... Uh, you know, uh, Senator Middleton other, uh, is known for his uh, agricultural and environmental interests, often bringing those together. He's a Democrat. Um, the year before that, we had um, Delegate Scott Lingenfelter from Virginia. Delegate Scott Lingenfelter is from Northern Virginia, so he understands urban demands really, really well. He also understands the military really well, and remember that you know, the military is one of the largest landowners in the, probably the largest landowner in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. Scott's a VMI and alum. That's right. And so he is a Republican and he brings those credentials to the table. So just in case the listeners didn't get it, bipartisan underline exclamation point. Really, it, you almost have to say nonpartisan because people check their partisanness at the door when they come into these meetings. They do, and that, that sounds like that's actually um, uh, not true, that that's just the storyline we would say. It's true. What I can say is, honestly, I can honestly tell you that up until about a year ago, maybe two years ago, most of the commission members were not even aware of each other's mm -hmm. party. Mm -hmm. We had never once published anything that had an R or a D because that wasn't important at all. Um, more recently, just this past year, we did do a publication that showed the, who was an R and who was a D, and it was quite instructive because um, this is not a requirement of their appointment. But as it turns out, we have 11 Republicans and 10 Democrats My right goodness. now. So it's very reflective of the country. It's very reflective of the changing dynamics of the region. And um, what it really shows is that the environment transcends party and the idea that clean water and a healthy bay means good business is a, a, a bipartisan issue. That's why Ann Swanson is so oft quoted. You have a great <sighs> turn of a phrase. I well. love that. 
we we're really got to talk about some of the issues. Uh, but I just want to, again, emphasize the collegiality of the yeah. members among each other comes through so clearly. And yeah. I, I, I really have to say, Anne, um, that, that starts at the top, both from the chairman and from the executive director from you. Okay, so let's talk about... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you do something very difficult. Ugh. Why don't you try to pick three signature issues, three signature uh, policies, three signature things the commission has championed in your tenure? You can pick any ones you want, recent, yeah, okay. long ago. Um. Okay, so one actually spans the, te the tenure between um, uh, when I worked at the Bay Foundation, although the commission was involved, I just wasn't there yet, and uh, when I went over to the, to the commission. And that has to do with a phosphate detergent ban. Mm -hmm. Long ago, very simple, all it was was let's take the phosphate out of laundry detergents. Why? Because phosphate is used to float dirt out of the clothes and into the water. That way, when the washing machine swirls around and then sucks the water out, it sucks the dirt out with the water, and you're left with clean clothes. So that's what phosphate does. It's also one of the principal pollutants in the Chesapeake Bay. So you don't want phosphate in the water, and of course, it was going out of the water with the, the dirt. But they had come up with an alternative an alternative that Procter & Gamble and the other makers of laundry soap could use. And so people saw it as an opportunity to reduce pollution, not after the pollution had occurred, but before, like pollution prevention. At the source. At the source. And if it's at the source, then you don't have to pay money trying to get it out of the source later. Now, I see the phosphate detergent ban very much as Oh, I don't know, say uh, uh, something, um, well, this is an example, not necessarily what I would want people to do, but say controlling dandelions in the country. Everyone is sharing it. You know, everybody does their, their thing to control dandelions. In my case, I weed them, you know, but still. So, so in the case of the uh, phosphate detergent ban, we were able to get legislation through that required the soap and detergent companies to remove that phosphorus in the water. First, we did it in Maryland, then we moved on and we, we moved it in Virginia. And this is now after I've moved over to the commission. We uh, then tackled Pennsylvania. We then tackled the District of Columbia. By default, Delaware, that basically gets their products from Maryland distributors, got a de, de facto ban. And so essentially, we tackled the region. And FYI, New York, which is in our watershed, did it even before any of our other Bay states did it. So they were really the ones that taught us to try. Okay. All right. Number, so number one, one, phosphate detergent ban. Right. Critical, right. critical environmental yeah. policy that has had benefits. I remember a couple of years after it was passed, uh, the Washington 
sewage treatment plant said they'd save something like $30 million just in three or four years from not having to uh, remove phosphates from the, from the wastewater. And just through that single, yeah. single action, we reduced the point source, which is the waste treatment plant's uh, phosphorus load by 13%. Okay. I'm anxious to hear what Huge. you're going to mention next, number Huge. two. So the second one, I guess I would say uh, I'm going to try to lump, you know. <laughs> so I'm going to try to lump what I would refer to as dedicated funds. And those are ways that you actually establish an income stream and it's locked down for just that use. And so in Maryland, there are two, two that I want to particularly showcase. One is a thing called Program Open Space, and the other is a thing called the Bay Restoration Fund. The Bay Restoration Fund, which was recently um, uh, established just a really uh, early in the 2000s, it, um, it, it charges everyone a small amount of money. And two, originally it was $250 a month, and then it was up temporarily to $5 a month. So that's really not a lot when you think about it. And it has paid to put every large sewage treatment plant in the entire state of Maryland at state-of-the-art nitrogen removal, okay? And now you might say, well, what does that mean to my sewage treatment plant? Well, basically, a typical sewage treatment plant might be discharging 27 milligrams per, per liter of, uh, of nitrogen, and they took it down to like six or four and so to give you the perspective, enormous pollution reduction at $2.50 a month per household. Per household, per household, yeah. per household. And in today's economy, when you think about it, $2.50, you barely blink. I mean, a Starbucks coffee, maybe more. So that was, and then we did the same thing with other pots of money. Program open space, every time you buy or sell a property, a percentage goes towards land conservation. So as land is developed, say, for example, you're keeping pace, play, uh, pace with it by buying parkland, buying open space, providing playgrounds. Virginia, it did it a different way. That's the other thing I've learned in my career is if you have a goal, keep your eye on the goal, but you can get there in different ways in different states. In the same way, if the three of us went on a Weight Watchers diet, you might choose to eat carrots. Another person might choose to eat one ice cream sandwich a day. You know, I might choose a third option that has a little bit of meat and, and lettuce. We're all getting to the same calorie count at the end of the day. And so the same is true with these dedicated funds. Maryland and Virginia have both established dedicated funds. Pennsylvania one needs one sorely. So that's my goal line right now. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. that would be the second huge achievement that I would say the Bay Commission front and center. Uh, our members carried the legislation on the floor in terms of the BRF, in terms of the Virginia dedicated funds for the, uh, anyway. Just, and your Pennsylvania members are now working on they're various the ideas. They're the a, champions. Yeah, yeah. They're the only ones in Pennsylvania that are putting forward those dedicated fund ideas. We'll keep our fingers yeah. crossed. Okay, number three. Probably number three. This is a tough question, I tell you. You're doing great. It is hard. Um, I'm trying to give you a mix. Mm -hmm. So I would say number three has to do with blue crabs. Mm -hmm. 
And blue crabs are obviously an iconic species in the Chesapeake Bay, and the whole idea of losing the blue crab would be uh, remarkably tragic on so many levels. It'd be tragic ecologically, it'd be tragic culturally, it'd be tragic economically, um, you know, politically, socially. I can come up with all these reasons why you would never want to lose the blue crab. And so the blue crab was in, in deep trouble. And one would think that a political institution like ours is certainly not involved in managing a blue crab. But what happened basically is we saw that each state was managing the blue crab in a silo, and they were not necessarily coordinating. In the Chesapeake region, Virginia has authority to manage the blue crab. So does, Pens so does Maryland, but also so does the Potomac River, which is the dividing line between the states. And they have the unique authority on the Potomac, the Potomac River Fisheries Commission, to manage the blue crab independently. And what we did is we brought all of the states together. We brought all of the scientists, 29 scientists, which I became the chair of the Scientific uh, Technical Advisory Committee. And then we created what was called the Bi-State Blue Crab Committee. And it was built like Noah's Ark, essentially, two of every kind. So we had our processors, we had our stakeholders, we had our uh, watermen, we had our state representatives. We had them all at the table. And we toiled. And we toiled for many, many years. It was at least uh, six years, maybe eight years. And eventually, we established what's called a target and a threshold. And the target is where you want to manage the blue crab for sustainability. For the first time in the history of the management of the blue crab, we determined scientifically how many crabs you need to leave in the water to replace themselves. Because think about it, every crab that can die is a political decision. Because how they die, whether it's a recreational crabber or a commercial crabber, like a trotliner or a crab potter, to the crab, it doesn't matter. It's a dead crab. But to who gets that crab, that's a very political decision. So what we did first is just back off and just make a scientific decision. How many crabs do we need in the water? That became our target. Then we moved aside, though. We said, you know what? We need a cautionary approach because management is not exact, and Mother Nature often you know, throws us curveballs. And so what we did was we, 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 we backed away and what we created, and actually I said it a little wrong, we first created the threshold. The threshold was that point where we would never go beyond the amount of crabs we need in the water was solid. And then we backed away and created a target. And the target was to manage the crabs uh, with a little wiggle room, a little extra wiggle room so we were safe. If, uh, we, like a contingency on a contract. Yeah, essentially. It was like the, it's almost like the, the target is the highway and, uh, and then we built in a breakdown lane, mm -hmm. you know, just in case we swerved a little on the road. So that's what we did. And the crabs now, they are doing great. In fact, it just came out that the female spawning class, it came out yesterday, but the females uh, spawning age crabs, which are the one plus year, it's the, uh, they're the highest in recorded history. 
it's a it's a great story, and we're all hoping that it continues. The but the blue crab, the oyster, some of the other species, the rockfish, doing better. The bays getting better. Mm-hmm. It's a fragile recovery, as we all know. And that was really super. And, and listeners should know, I, I did not tell Anne in advance I was going to ask no. that. But <laughs> it, it's fascinating. You you started with pollution, you went to funding, and you ended with the resource, the species, one of the species. Well done. Well, for uh, our esteemed producer, Lauren Barnett, who sits here with us and I, this has been fascinating it's probably a longer conversation than we've had with others in the past, but I think we could go on for another hour or <laughs> two or three. So here's my, my hope is that you'll come back and do this again. Sure, sure. And uh, thank you for all you do. Thank you for the commission's great work. Uh, you and I have been at this for a while, and I think, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, ask you if this is true, but... I sense a certain optimism that we've gotten to a level where we can actually say the bay is getting better. And now what we have to do is continue it to its conclusion of saving the bay. Right. And I hope it's going to happen in our lifetimes because I want to enjoy it, not just my kids. You know, uh, the conditions in 2016 took my breath away. For the first time uh, in my career, I saw clarity of the waters improve, some of the best in 30 years. I saw seagrasses, not just in isolated pockets, but across the watershed improve. I saw the dissolved oxygen at extraordinary levels. In fact, there were no, zero, there were no areas of of totally devoid of oxygen in first, the bay. First year in how many decades? Since, since the measurements, at least taken. in what, 85? And so the conditions were extraordinary, and, and some, many scientists thought we were at a tipping point. They thought we were at that point where nature takes over and begins helping itself, you know. And so I was so excited, and I really saw that my glass, which was half empty, <laughs> had become half, half full. full. Now, that's not the goal line. That's not what's going to get me into heaven, you know, but still... It's, it's half full, and the idea now that we might relax the reins in this partnership, that the federal and state governments might not amplify their support at this point because they can see their racehorse winning is uh, terribly troubling to me. That's, so. that's the next conversation. I know we're all concerned about the new federal administration, some budget cuts, but we're fighters, and we're not giving up. And... Um, I've often said that I'm a hopeless optimist. We're going to keep at this, and we're going to win, and we're going to do it in our lifetimes. Ann Swanson, thank you so much. We've been friends for a long time, and uh, as I say, I hope you'll come back and talk again uh, in the future. Thank you, Will. You do an awesome job.